Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Greg Pickett. Hey, welcome back uh, to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I've got uh, an old friend of mine, Paco Chiariki, on the uh, on the phone today. Um, Paco's a uh, an accomplished author, documentarian, pilot, fighter pilot. Twenty um, some years ago, we uh, we served a uh, a tour on the uh, the USS Ranger together, and uh, and reconnected recently. Um, his recent book is a, a great novel called Lions of the Sky. Uh, a documentary that goes back a few years ago is uh, is Speed and Angels, and uh, and it's fascinating. So, Paco, thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Craig, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, hey, look, um, it's been a long time since. Uh, you know, we served together on the on the Ranger, and you went uh, you went along a lot farther in your your career than I did. Um, you transitioned out of uh, A sixes and went to F fourteens, and then even took it further from there to become a uh, a fighter pilot trainer with uh, with the Saints of VSC thirteen. What you know, what did that 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 had to te- taught you a lot about just you know making that transition into the uh, the trainer of of pilots. They teach you a lot about leadership and dynamics of people and things like that. What, you know, where did that? Uh... It did. Well, I mean, there's, you know, anytime you leave a, one community or one organization and go into another one, obviously you're, you become very sensitive to the dynamics of, of leadership within that group and try to insert yourself in a, in an effective way. Um, Going from being an active duty uh, fighter pilot to um, I, I went into the reserves to go into VFC 13 and to become a adversary pilot who now is responsible for uh, training both active duty um, fleet pilots and active duty uh, student pilots was, you know, it was a great experience. It was a great responsibility. And I mean, like you mentioned, you, you have to become very sensitive to now the the different roles that you're taking on board and the different style of leadership that you, that are required for the job. So in a lot of ways, you're a peer, you're a mentor, you're someone these younger kids look up to. There's a whole lot of dynamics. There is. And then, oh, by the way, you got to keep yourself safe too. Exactly. And, and the more, uh, the more difficult dynamics are the ones with, uh, you know, that your, your peers that are of the same age and ostensibly the same experience level as you, that you're, you're trying to, uh, you know, as, as an adversary, you're, you're putting pressure on their system and you're trying to uh, uh, create cracks in the way that they do business, which for them is, you know, flying a mission. Um, and so you, you need to be able to explain to them the mistakes that they made without making it confrontational or personal, which I, I always thought was an interesting challenge. Do you find that to be hard? Do people take, uh, how well did you find people take criticism when you, when you came up and said, hey, you know, you lost because yeah you made this very specific mistake um you know there's a there's a few things actually there's there's a lot of tricks that we use in in the adversary world to be able to um to right off the bat diffuse that you did this you did that situation 
Um, so, you know, again, we're, we're peers, critiquing peers and often actually superiors, you know, squadron commanders or air wing commanders, strike leaders, this kind of stuff. Um, we're really, really good at what we do and they're trying to become very good at a much broader um, thing. So, you know, like I said earlier, we're, we're, our job is to put pressure on their tactics and, and their tactics are much more uh, far reaching than, than our simple mission, which is to disrupt. Um, and so one of the, the things we do right off the bat is we don't use people's names in debriefs and, and then debrief is where everything happens, right? The, that's where all the learning takes place. And it's the most important part of basically being an adversary pilot is being able to debrief. Um, so you, you, you take the names out of it. You say, you know, the, the blue fighter or the blue lead or, or, you know, the, the wingman made this, uh, action which led to this result and then the bandit and again you don't say I shot you you would say the bandit was able to come in and take advantage of that mm -hmm. um, so right off the bat that's a hugely important um, technique to you know depersonalize this so now I'm not getting in your face and saying you screwed up and because you screwed up I was able to shoot you um, that that I think was the most valuable debrief technique um, the other thing we did was, you know, we, we, we had a very rigorous training program on our side uh, to get ourselves up to um, a level where we could say, look, I, I, I'm walking into this room as a highly trained um, level four instructor adversary. And just by having that, um, that training program on our side and that validation uh, allows us to walk in as you know a subject matter expert and be able to uh to have some credibility right away when you're walking into the room you're not just some guy some peer who's coming in like a gunslinger and saying hey man you messed up and i got you right no i i always thought you know look it's it, it you know just you know i think corporations businesses you know how they do their you know you talk about the 360 peer review and um how to make teams better uh if they ever went into a tax trailer, a Miramar or out of Lemoore now, and you know, really, really saw how people with big egos teach each other um, and review each other, um, a lot of CEOs could uh, could learn a lot in building their teams. Absolutely, I, th I think there's huge value in that, and and you, you, I think you nailed one of the things too. Is like everybody in that trailer, everybody in that debrief. It has a huge ego, right? But they all, they, one of the things that um, distinguishes that group is that they all have the same goal. There's a common goal. Everybody wants to get better. Yeah, that's cool. Hey, let's, uh, let's switch subject a little bit. So loved your book, Lions of the, Lions of the Sky. Yeah. Um, on Amazon, um, or I, I think I found it. Yeah, I found it on Amazon, but I saw it over at the bookstore too and, and loved it. Um, you know, read it, read through it went back and read a lot of it again. And I think you did some really cool things in there. One, one of your main characters, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, the book is about fighter pilots and Navy squadrons That's on right. the aggregate, but you did some really cool things. You know, you, one of your main characters is a, uh, is a couple of uh, female F-18 pilots going through training. That's right. And how they're accepted. And, 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 you know, earlier in the book and then later in the book, you talk about how, you know, uh, a lack of acceptance to that regard, 
you know, um, to something new really hurt the organization down the road. That's and right. Caused, and caused some issues. And I thought, yeah, look, it was, there's a lot of thought put into that storyline. How'd you get there? Well, I mean, you and I both lived through, you know, the, the introduction of women in, um, in naval aviation on the combat side, right? On the deploying side, there had been uh, women flying in the Navy before that, but they hadn't deployed with us on carriers. Um, and uh, it was, it was a, as an observer, I mean, obviously I was a participant, but as an observer as well, it was an incredibly fascinating sociological experience to, to take part in and to, and to watch. Um, so many things were done right and so many things were done wrong. And, you know, ultimately the issue was that there was an organization that for institutional reasons was completely resistant to the concept of having somebody new come on board. Um, and it was, you know, I was part of that, right? I was a young man who had, was brought up in this culture that had been around for a hundred years, right? Naval aviation was maybe not a hundred years old at the time, but it's basically a hundred years old now. Uh, and we had been doing it for nearly a century the way we had been doing it and, and be, been very effective. Um, and so we, we were confident that the way we did things was right. And then by congressional decree, all of a sudden this new group of people were, uh, sort of forced into the organization and it was, you know, it was like continents coming together, right? It was a cataclysmic on a, on a certain level. Um, and, you know, the, the important part of that was trying to figure out why was there resistance to this and was it, was it valid? Was there, was there a valid reason to not have women flying in the military? And, you know, there were, there were lots of little things that, bugged us that ultimately meant nothing. Like I remember, uh, you know, sitting around in the, in, in our birthing rooms on the ship going, you know, they don't even have to go through the obstacle course like we do. And then I would think about it, you know, months later and I'm like, I'm not really sure what being able to climb over a 10 foot wall has to do with flying a, a super right. hornet. Uh, you know, it, you had to sort of reset the parameters of what, what is necessary to becoming a fighter pilot. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, I, I just having lived through that and, and uh, you know, I've got a, a really strong, uh, intelligent mother who's very successful. My wife's uh, very successful. We hope to raise our daughter in a way that, you know, is similar, that she's a strong, successful, independent woman. Um, it is just a thing that really fascinated me. It's an aspect of the story that fascinated me. And I wanted to explore that. You know, along the same lines, though, too, it's, it's you know, we, I was at a conference over the weekend, you know, so much, you know, social media has really, you know, has really amped up the, uh, the conversation, you know, now you got, you know, you know the, the LGBT you know, Q community and, and, you know, like 20 years ago, it would have been unheard of to have these conversations now, and a lot of people resist it. And you bring it up and you think about, you know, look, if you want, if you ever want a social experiment and see how things are going to work out, I keep saying, go look at the military. Right. You know, first organization to you know, integrate you know, African-Americans, um, you exactly. know, successfully brought on. But I think that's a, that's a lot of, you know, leadership and acceptance at the, at the, the junior ranks level too. It's like, Hey, look, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to make it, we're going to make it right. Change is strange, but. Um, you get on board. Right. 
Yeah, and and I mean to your point that the military is um, it's a great laboratory for that. You know, you, because you can you can tell the military what to do. You could say you're going to have women flying in in the in the cockpit. Figure it out. Right. Um, and and you've got some really great leaders who are going to. You know, they may or may not make all the right decisions, but they're going to, ultimately they've got their eye on the prize and and they're going to figure out how to make it work. And then on the other end, you've got this new wave every year. You've got hundreds, if not thousands of new young people coming into the the military, into the organization. And and culturally they are vastly different than the dudes and, uh, you know, the superiors that are 30 years, their elders. And to them, it's not a big issue to have a woman in the cockpit or to have a, a, LGBT in the ready room. It's not right. a big deal for them. They grew up with that. Yep. It's, it's, uh, I mean, look, the world, the world changes. Um, you know, you and I used to show up at Miramar on Wednesday night and it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a crazy atmosphere. I don't think you see it anymore. I'm not sure. No, no, no. Only in <laughs> I my think, book. <laughs> I, I think the, uh, I think the hundred airplanes arriving at five for the, uh, the seven o'clock, uh, beer fest. As, a, as long gone. And, and who knows? Yeah, that, that may be a good thing too. It's just, uh, you know, things change and accept the change. And, you know, I think that's something though on the business side of the house, you know, as, as uh, you know, companies uh, you know, grow their leaders, it's, you know, accept everything, accept everyone for what they are, you know, judge it on, judge it on competency. Exactly. And the ability to perform versus, you know, the social norms that you you think may or may not be, uh, may be true. So. Right. Exactly. Like it's, it doesn't really matter if, you know, you can make it over that wall. It matters if you can fly your fighter into combat. That's, and, that's and lead and lead people and lead people effectively and lead people and be a team player and, and, uh, and do your job well. And that's what, uh, yeah, yeah. I could never figure out what the 10 foot wall argument was about either, but, uh, it, it, it was there. So. Yep. It was there. It was the way we did it, right? It was that. It was that old thing that always drags down progress. It's like that's the way we've always done it, right? You you hear that all the time. Yep, absolutely. So so you're you're with Delta now, flying seven thirty sevens. I am. I'm going to switch subject one more time on you. Um, you know the the it, and I've worked with a lot of training companies. Um, kind of see how the. The environment is changing as, as tech comes in play, obviously the Boeing incident right. um, recently. Yeah. You know, is the world, you know, coming out of the Navy, you and I were always thought, taught, you know, you knew your airplane cold. Mm-hmm. You knew every system, you knew every button, you know, you knew everything about it before you ever got into it. And it was always a learning experience. You know, are we, are we training airline pilots worldwide to be systems managers or are they really understanding how the airplane works. Well, I mean, so I can only really speak anecdotally to the, to the uh, global training. Um, It's a very complicated answer. I think Craig to to what you just asked. Um, And it comes down to, you know, environment and culture and um, in the availability of resources. So in the United States, people become pilots because they love to fly. Uh, and it usually starts with some kid who goes to the airport when he's a teenager and he's washing planes or fueling planes and he gets a couple Cessna rides and he gets bitten by the bug and next, you know, fast forward 20 years and now he's an airline pilot. So he's got this amazing depth of um, knowledge, both in the industry and a passion for flying. And he knows how to fly a plane because he flew a, a cruddy little old Cessna for, for years on end before moving up to something that's got all the technological marbles. Um, 
in other countries, they don't have that, right? They don't, there's not hundreds and hundreds of airports with tons of planes and people going flying on the weekend. They, they, but they still have vast distances that they need to uh, take people from. And um, there's a, there's a, a growing demand, right? In Asia and, and certain mm-hmm. in Africa, there's a huge growing demand for aviation. Um, and so how do you solve that problem where you don't have that, that baseline of, experience of all these, you know, young people who just love to fly and end up being airline pilots. Uh, in other places in the world, you have people that look at aviation as a great job and it is a great job, but you know, they come to it from a completely different standpoint. Um, and there's, uh, a massive demand for pilots, but there's not an infrastructure to bring those pilots up into the pipeline. So what happens is they have these academies where they'll take people right out of, uh, you know, high school or college, train them up to the minimum standard, which is about 200 hours. So mm-hmm. they'll put them in those Cessnas, but the, you know, it's highly regulated, um, you know, very much like uh, the way we learn to fly in the military where you just, you know, every day you're going out and accomplishing a couple different things. And then as soon as they get 200 hours, they get certified and they're in the right seat of a 737 or an Airbus, uh, you know, 320. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're flying with a captain who has many thousands of hours, but Again, it's all airline hours, which is a much different type of flying than you do when you're learning how to fly, um, you know, smaller airplanes. Um, and to a large degree, there's systems managers, and that becomes, uh, unfortunately, that becomes evident when things go wrong, right? When you need, when you need to be able to fly the airplane, um, they don't have that depth of knowledge of just flying. Right. We were, we were always taught aviate, navigate, communicate. And, and, and that's how you deal with the, that's how you begin to deal with an emergency. And they, they are sorely lacking in the aviate portion of the, uh, the skills. So, um, and, and, and I say they, that's a, that's a huge, you know, catch all. It's, it's obviously not, uh, it, it, it doesn't describe every pilot's experience. Um, but, you know, if you look back at the mishaps that have happened over the last decade or so, you, you would see that the pilot error comes from not being able to fly an airplane. Right. And, and I think that's, that's uh, of concern. It should be of concern. And I, I don't know exactly what the answer is. You know, it's, we're at an intersection between um, technology and AI and, and, and what airplanes can do for pilots versus what pilots can do for airplanes that I think is going to be uh, crucial moving forward. Yeah. I mean, there's this Boeing, you know, the, the Boeing max thing, like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have thrown Boeing under the bus. My attitude is wait for the report to come out. There's probably other causal factors as well. You comfortable with the way technology is going from an experience? You know, you're highly experienced Pilot, are you comfortable with the way technology is going? Well, I mean, yes and no. So the question is, are you going to have people in the cockpit, right, moving forward or at, or at a certain point? If you're going to have people in the cockpit, then they need to know how to fly. And if they, knew, if they need to know how to fly, then <laughs> you can't have technology that does everything for them. So, that, right. you know, that's, that's going to be your decision point. Do you want a pilot in the cockpit? If you do, then the technology has to support the pilot. It, it can't do his job for him. It has to support him in, as he does his job. Because 
in an emergency, the pilot needs to know how to fly. <laughs> and, and if he needs to know how to fly, then at some point he has to fly, you know, as much as possible. Um, if you don't want to have pilots in the cockpit, then, you know, that's fine. And then, then that's a purely technology play. I, I, that is not my specialty. Um, you know, that's, that's up to the engineers. I think that technology exists. I'm not sure what value it is, right? I mean, we haven't had a major mishap uh, with an American carrier in, in decades. Over a decade, yeah, well yeah. over a decade. I think it's two decades now. But, um, you know, so it's not going to be safety, right? It's going to be cost. So who's going to be comfortable with that? Um, the computer flying the plane without any pilots, it's not going to make it any safer than it is with properly trained pilots. So that's that's a... Interesting thought, but no, I like your, I like your, I like your thought. Yeah. Hey, look, it, you got two ways to go. Either you make it autonomous or you make it, you know, if it's not going to be autonomous, you, you make a system that supports the pilot. Right. You know, I'm more of the latter genre, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, obviously I am too. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I mean, it just, it, it just, it kind of, I mean, I just, Hey, look, I, I think that, you know, I think it needs, it needs to be there. You know, that, that man presence needs to be there. Something needs to be the adult supervision. And yeah. It's not, always, it's, it's not going to be a computer and AI. That's what no, but you know, it's going to be difficult. I think at some point somebody is going to create a fully autonomous airplane and offer it to, you know, a airline in Southeast Asia or China or Africa and say, hey, look, you can get people from A to B for $30 mm -hmm. and you'll never have to pay pensions or there's no training costs no lodging, you know, you don't have to get people from their hotel back to the airport. Uh, it's just a plane, fuel yep. it up, update the software, firmware. And, uh, <laughs> I and think we're, away, we're, we're a ways away. Uh, I don't think it's as close as, uh, as people think, but it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting view. I mean, like I said, I've been watching the Boeing thing pretty closely just yet. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just come back and say, look, wait for the, yeah, you know, wait for the report to come out. It's not just, and in, in, you know, it's not just Boeing. It's not Muhlenberg. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's involved in. You know, let's, uh, let's wait and see. Yeah. Um, hey, before we came on, yeah, you know, before we hit record, you were talking about you. You brought up a couple of real good points, and we, we we went back into the squadron, and we were talking about leadership. And you were saying, hey, look, you know, you've got, you know, a bunch of peers, and, and with that peer group, you know, somebody always breaks out as a leader. Right. You've seen a lot of good leaders. I have. Um, you know, come through the, the squadron walls and in your training programs and stuff. What makes the guy who's a wallflower or a girl who's a wallflower break out as a leader from what you see? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, you know, and when it comes to peer leadership, uh, there's – I, I think a, a, another issue is there's always like situational leaders, right? So you'll, you'll have a certain objective that needs to be met um, and somebody will fit that situation better than others and be able to take that role on and, 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 and move people in that direction in a, in sort of a unified manner. Um, passion, obviously is whoever, whoever is most passionate about whatever that, thing that needs to be accomplished is, is going to stand out from other people, a desire to, to get from A to B, um, the ability to cajole, right? If you're leading your peers, you can't just stand up on a chair and say, Hey, 
you know, everybody get behind me and, and let's run. Uh, you don't necessarily have that um, weight of, of um, authority behind you. You've got to be able to corral the, the, the disparate people and, and get them all marching in the same direction. And that's a really uh, interesting and difficult skill. Um, but yeah, probably just the, the passion and desire to accomplish whatever it is that that group is trying to, to do. So the guy who's the most passionate can stand up and get people to follow and becomes a leader. Well, I don't know if it's stand up, right? I mean, cause like, uh, you know, you and I were, were in these ready room environments where, um, everybody was very cynical and, and you know, there's a lot of inertia and, um, you know, you, you've got to be, to, to be a really good leader of your peers, you've got to be able to convince them to do what it is you want them to do in a way that they're going to agree to, right? Yeah, make it their idea. <laughs> I make it their idea. Yep. And I mean, that's the best way, but that's really, that's also probably the most difficult. But, um, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways to do that. There's tons, and there's as many different ways to do that as there are personalities, but you've got to cajole, I think is the word I used earlier. You've got to sort of wrangle the, the herd uh, in, in some different way to get them moving towards the objective that you want them to move to. And that's, that's the most difficult thing. And if you just say, hey, come on, guys, let's do it this way, it's almost never going to work, <laughs> right? That's people, for whatever reason, especially peers, just don't respond well to that sort of motivation. Yeah, I got you. So what's next for you? You got Lions in the Sky out? You, you got a follow-on? What's, uh, what's coming next? Yeah, I'm three chapters into uh, the sequel, book two in the series. Uh, and um, I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's obviously a naval aviation thriller as well, um, with many of the same characters from uh, Lions of the Sky, and some new ones in a new part of the world. It's gonna it takes place in the North Arabian Sea, uh, with uh, you know just like I did with Lions of the Sky. I want to take that scenario and approach it in a way that's totally different and interesting and fresh, and still lots of fun and dynamic stuff going on and tensions and. That's, and no, I'll, I'll look forward to uh, to reading that one as uh, as well. And and you know, this will come out right after Memorial Day. And um, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, this podcast will come out right after Memorial Day. But the other thing I want to say is, uh, you know, Lions of Skies. I was reading it. You know, you you talk about a. You talk about a couple characters in the book, and uh, I recognized him instantly. Um, you know, and I'll let people get it before I spoil it. But it was a great tribute to some of the uh, to some of the folks we lost early. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I look at it and and uh, you know some of your characters and, and some of the the, the forum. Um, you know, I just thought it was a, a great way to pay tribute to those folks. And um, as people are you know, coming on Memorial Day, um, don't forget the people in uniform who are out there yeah. at the pointy end. Exactly. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, linesofthesky.com is probably the easiest. There's a contact me or on Facebook. I've got a great uh, Facebook page. Paco Kirichi author uh, is another way. And uh, Twitter at Paco Kirichi. So P-A-C-O-C-H-I-E-R-I-C-I. Cool. You're going to come back on? Will you come back on? You'll talk to us again? Absolutely. I'd love to. Awesome. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. My pleasure, man.